what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast. This is episode number 18. Thank you for joining us. Now in today's episode, I'm joined by the fantastic Beth Martins, who is host of the King's Hero Journey Podcast. She's also the creator of the House of Free Will. Now the reason I wanted to get Beth on the show is to talk about archetypes, which is a topic that she's very involved with. So I wanted to talk to Beth about how these archetypes impact our lives. How do they influence our psychological world? And also how does learning about them help us to improve our lives as well. Now by archetypes I'm talking about the psychological profiles that have permeated every civilization and society in history. So if you go back throughout history, throughout all the different societies, what you find is certain psychological traits and profiles are reoccurring and we call these archetypes. Now the archetypes are universal in nature because they've been found in literally every culture throughout history. So just to give one example, it would be like the Joker. So the archetype of the Joker is the person who is always jovial, always cracking a joke, always making people laugh. And we see this archetype replayed throughout history. There was the jester. And, you know, even if you watch a Hollywood film or if you watch a TV series today, there are archetypes being used in the characters. So if you go back to a famous one when I was young, it was Friends. Who was the Joker there? Well, of course, that was Chandler. So these archetypes are repeating and different civilizations will embody them in different ways. Today, we see them in film and TV. But if you go back to a civilization like the ancient Greeks, for example, they would embody them through their gods and deities and through all of the Greek mythology. They are also often used in esoteric practices so for example the tarot deck which I use quite often in coaching with clients the tarot deck has a major arcana and every one of those cards is a universal archetype and that's why they're so powerful because they embody this archetypal language and that really speaks to our subconscious similarly we've got the signs of the zodiac and of course the bible itself scripture is full of archetypal characters and stories and we'll talk a little bit about that in tonight's show too so this is a fantastic conversation that i really enjoyed having particularly as somebody who works with people one-to-one and uses archetypes myself as part of that process so in part one we really get into this subject of archetypes and beth tells us how she came upon them herself and used it to change her life following a near-death experience in which beth nearly lost her life in her 20s then in part two we discuss how archetypes influence our own spiritual journey and we discuss some of the false spirituality that has gripped the west over the past two decades and we talk about how to break free from that and then we go into a little bit of a conversation about the law and about how the law is being used against us to enact tyranny and how by learning the law we can actually overcome that so that's a really interesting 
end to part two as well. So I will leave it there for the intro. Members, please head over to parallelmind.com for the full episode. Thank you to everyone who has joined up recently. Your support is appreciated and I hope these conversations help you to move forward into a brighter and more spiritually awakened future. In closing, thank you so much for listening. As always, I wish you all good health and happiness. And of course, I will see you all in the next one. Hey, hi everybody. I am here with Beth Martins from King's Hero Journey podcast and you've also got a great YouTube channel, Beth. So uh, the reason I wanted to have you on the show, Beth, is because I found your work a long time ago and I thought it was fantastic, but it was before I had my podcast, like I mentioned in the pre-show discussion we just had, and I thought I'd really love to talk to you one day. And lo and behold, you popped back up on my Rockfin feed very recently and I thought, oh, fantastic. That's the woman I need to speak to about archetypes because you're a bit of an expert on archetypes and it's something that I work with a lot and have done my entire career. So thank you so much for joining us, Beth. It's a pleasure to have the chance to finally speak with you. But for listeners that have not come across you before, Beth, perhaps you could tell us just a little bit about yourself and what led you to making a podcast and doing the work you're doing now. For sure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a complete pleasure. I love that you're in Poland, as we talked about a little bit before, because I've got some uh, roots there. And uh, so I am a purpose archetype and also business coach and help people to deprogram and release what stands on top of the otherwise what would be perfect order of God within ourself out in the world. Um, I, I love archetypes because they point to patterns that otherwise can seem like they're not there because we have a world of chaos. We're always being thrown the next level of, you know, garbage or whatever kind of uh, nonsense in our world. And so people get lost in that chaos. And then archetypes are a way to create a map of how to navigate in a way that's uh, in alignment with God's order, the structure of of the way that we are built and our world is built as well. So I help people to deprogram, to let go of what stands in their way of, you know, having good relationships, good health, good, uh, you know, work that is actually true to their soul, who they are, um, to help them with whether it's money or entrepreneurialism. That's something that I've done for a number of years. I came from the business world originally with my family's business. From the age of 10, I worked with them in their marketing communication firm. And then by the time I'm 25, I'd been the vice president for almost a decade. And I nearly dropped dead of a stage four lymphoma. I literally wanted to get out of that world, but uh, I didn't know how to just walk away gracefully. So I made myself super sick, nearly died, took three years. And it was the, the discovery of working with archetypes at a deep inner level, not just thinking about and intellectualizing about them, but using them as a way to find out, you know, why I was a dying person when I was doing everything right for myself. So that's kind of a Cole's notes. Wow, that's, that's so much to unpack there, Beth. So one of the, the first thing that I came to me when you were saying that was this uh, cancer that you had. Was this something that you felt was a physical representation of this kind of repressed feelings that you had? Because you mentioned wanting to leave that role. Do you think that's how this uh, illness or this disease, should we say, came on? 
Yes, absolutely. I, I, I saw how things aren't separate, like the physical isn't separate from the spiritual, isn't separate from the mental, isn't separate, separate from the emotional, that we're really like, if you check in, it's just all one here, over here, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, my body did the work that I wasn't able to consciously decide to do my body, you know, and actually, since studying the law, which maybe we'll get into a tiny bit as well, I was able to see a really great metaphor that at all costs, you want to stay out of court, right? You you want to settle your matters in the private. And I see how once the body, it's, it's become the body's job to litigate, to, to, you know, make a ruling to decide, then it's very extreme. It's high stakes. I didn't know if I was going to live or die for three years. I was told I wouldn't survive it. I had a near-death experience. I allowed myself to die. And, uh, and, you know, so it's very, it's very intense once it's embedded in the body and you've, you've handed over your work to the body to do. I made it out alive, but, you know, many people don't necessarily do that at that point. So I don't know if that answers your question there. No, it does. And I think it's a very advanced way of looking at things. And I've certainly seen that throughout my life in the people that I've worked with and also in myself that, yeah, if we don't, if we don't deal with what's going on in the conscious and the subconscious and start to work on ourselves, then it, it, things happen in the physical realm. Uh, we, and it manifests uh, in the body, but then it can also manifest in events that happen around us to almost like we, we draw in this toxicity. Uh, so I, it really speaks to me when you say that. So I, I was taken aback to hear it like, wow, that, you know, you saw it that way too, because you don't hear many people uh, speak like that. Uh, and how did archetypes come into that narrative then, Beth, around that time of your life? How, what was it that helped you to realize that these narratives exist, uh, sorry, archetypes exist? And how did that start to change the situation? Yeah, so as I mentioned, for three years, I'd been doing everything possible, making changes in my life. Uh, you know, hired an incredible amount of alternative practitioners. I was trying so hard not to go through the medical system. I had a very strong bias against them. And uh, so I was doing everything possible and, you know, changing my diet and doing this modality and that modality and everything that I could see was of value, but I was still a dying person. Uh, I had been diagnosed a second time after uh, a period of remission and the second diagnosis, they told me that you're not going to live through this and the, your only chance to live would be a stem cell transplant. So I started looking into a stem cell transplant. Turns out half the people die doing that transplant. It's very gory. You're in isolation. Uh, they almost kill you with chemotherapy and then harvest like a bunch of Satanists. They harvest your stem cells, give them back to you in hopes that it's going to save your life. And uh, I, I actually did see somebody go through a stem cell transplant and they died. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it was a year or two years later, they couldn't recover from the, uh, the violence. So I decided at that point that I had to, you know, something. I was like, okay, God, what? Something has to give. And at that time, Carolyn Miss, who was one of the authors I'd been following in the healing world, had published a book called Sacred Contracts. And I knew I needed that book. I didn't even know what it was about. I just knew I, I went and I grabbed it and I started reading through it. It is all about archetypes. So that was my, my second foray into that subject. I had studied about them in my degree in anthropology, more from the academic perspective. And then this was an invitation to do the deep inner work. 
And uh, it took me months. It took me like three months daily working through that, but I knew that it, it held the keys to me for me. And I was able to use it to actually face my death rather than run away from it. I felt like I'd been doing that, but to allow myself, okay, you know, if it's my time, then I accept I'm not going to rail against this or do everything uh, possible to avoid it. And, and when I went into that death energy and discovered the one archetype that for me was super out of alignment and was in fact draining the life out of me, then I began to recover practically overnight and I never had to look back. So I can definitely unpack why it works. It wasn't, you know, at the time it seemed like a mystical thing that couldn't be explained, but now this many, you know, 20 years later, I, I definitely know why it worked. And um, so we have a mechanism inside of ourself that is kind of like a, I don't want to say two-way valve because I'm not super uh, uh, mechanical in that respect, but it is, it is a kind of valve. And we are trained to suppress our human experience. And because our human experience is intensely weaponized against us, right? Controllers capitalize on scaring us. We know that now, right? And they might scare you with a boogeyman virus, but if you don't fall for boogeyman viruses, they might scare you with financial collapse and famine and other things that, you know, maybe us in the truth world might be more vulnerable to. And so when you have some kind of fear in your, in your system, we have, um, a knee-jerk aversion to it, and we want to be separate from it. But it turns out that our power is all tied up in that. And the fear itself can be, you know, at many levels, it can be apathy and grief and, and fear itself, lust, anger, pride, even courage, acceptance, and peace, which is something that people would never think of because once you're in courage, acceptance, or peace, you think, well, I'm free now, or I'm, you know, feel better. But it turns out that there's fear programming underneath the whole human experience. And so this allowed me to unsuppress that fear programming to go through it, to go through my death while I was alive, to go through that fire, let it, let it burn me come out the other side and realize like, oh, wow, I'm still here and I feel good. <laughs> and I feel much freer. And my, my, the way that my inner world is showing up and the way my outer world is showing up is foundationally changed forever. Right? It doesn't mean that the whole job was done in that time, but enough of it was done to reclaim all of the energy that I used to suppress that important part of myself. In this case, it was the rebel archetype, the second one on the hero's journey that I can talk about as well. And um, and then by awakening that, I turned into, you know, rather than the rebel without the, the cause, much more the rebel with the cause, the energy came back into my system. And I always say how, I don't know how to heal from cancer, but that energy, that free energy did. Now I know it to be, of course, God energy that it always was. But as long as you've maintained a separateness from it, the, you know, the door of it, I know I'm getting super deep here, um, then it's, it, it, it pulls the life out of you. It's not life giving, but once you go through it, see it for what it is, make new decisions, then you can reclaim that life power that you didn't have. And that's how I healed from cancer.
Wow, it sounds like um, a lot like you had a rebirth uh, after that experience. Uh, and I had a similar experience when I had a near-death experience in my 20s. And uh, that I saw it very much the same, that after that experience, everything was changed. And you come back to life again with a completely different paradigm, new perspective, and um, it, you can make sense of life. And it's almost like the fear of death then remo is removed. Once that's gone, you're free, because that's really the primordial fear that they always hook us with is like well if you don't do this you're gonna die you're gonna get sick and die <laughs> we're gonna kill you we're gonna come for you it's always that fear of death and once that's removed then there is no longer a psychological hook for them you know we, you mentioned about fear of like maybe financial ruin and these things but there's always practical solutions to them but death well no we are all gonna die it's a fact so uh, that's really interesting but one thing that i wanted to uh go back to about what you just said was you mentioned about the archetypes and how one particular archetype and i think we've probably got a, a mutual connection over this one beth in that my one of my primary archetypes is the rebel too and i had that same experience and the rebellious archetype can actually come out in very destructive ways but all archetypes can can't they, they can there's positives to them and there's negatives and it's about trying to harness the positive side of the archetype and diminish the negatives so maybe you could uh, speak to that a little bit about this dualism that there is with these archetypes and i guess in life in general that there's these positives and negatives and for each of us we have to try and understand the archetypes so we can focus on those positive parts and not allow the negative ones to destroy us and i, I think with the rebel one particularly it can be very destructive on the negative side yeah you're absolutely right uh, every single archetype has two expressions and it's not really that it's two, it's just that we're, our perspective is two. <clears throat> so I, I call it, and it doesn't matter, you know, positive, negative, but I call it an awakened side where you're actually, you're using that tool that God gave us, that order, that structure, you're using it for uh, conscious purposes and, and purposeful reasons. And then on the other side, it's what, what is hidden, what is suppressed, what is uh, pushed away from the awareness like I talked about. And when you suppress something, it doesn't go away. It continues to express, even though you're not aware of it, right? It continues to play out. You continue to create certain realities and attract certain realities. The reason why you attract them, by the way, is not uh, you know just a torture kind of thing meant to uh, teach us to get away from that. It's that it's your own inner self calling out to you saying, I have like, because our nature is wholeness. That's, that's our true nature, not split between conscious and unconscious. And so the unconscious is going to forever beacon out to you with problems and chaos and breakdowns and conflict, especially with the rebel, of course, and all of that stuff, because, and it's like your body getting sick. Otherwise, it will never get our attention to bring ourselves into greater wholeness. And so that hidden part of ourself, some people would say like, you know, that's evil, but I've really in the last three years done a deep dive trying to study what evil is. And the unconscious side of an archetype has an innocence to it. It's just simply what you don't see, right? You can't, you can't call it evil. You can't even really call it negative, although it, it creates negative experiences and circumstances. But evil can interact with the unconscious much more easily than the person who's awake and saying like, oh, really, evil? You want me to what? Or that makes no sense compared to the unconscious whose realm 
is the very definition of no sense. And so the evil can interact really easily with someone who is, um, you know, unconsciously committed against not a conscious decision to being more unconscious than they are conscious. Because what do you bring up when you commit to being conscious is pain, right? Some kind of pain is going to follow that. Like when a limb is asleep, when you fall asleep on it, and, uh, and it becomes to, it, it starts coming to the first sensation you have is pain. So it's easy to think about that as wrong. And for me, I had such high stakes. I was going to die. Like you said, it is, it is the uh, psychological hook. And when I faced that death, instead of running away from it, then I was able to gain that greater awareness and start making decisions from a much more lucid place. Now, the, now the job isn't done. This, this fear of death as a program is uh, intensely layered over a lifetime, maybe lifetimes, I can't prove that. And you're absolutely right about the rebirth experience. This, this is a sort of soapbox that I get on about that people are using spiritual work as a way to ascend, to raise their frequency, to raise their energy, to go higher, 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 and that that will be the solution to all the problems is, is higher vibration. But that's actually a lie. To me, that is much more the satanic flip of it. And what we're really meant to do is die and be reborn. And that, that is more in alignment with the life of Christ. What okay, he that's really interesting, Beth. I've not heard actually you say that before. And I've listened to some of your previous work, but I've not heard that specific way of putting it. So maybe you could tell me a bit more about the, um, the idea of that our, would you say destiny to be reborn, that, that our goal is to be reborn and this isn't, because this is often portrayed as a negative, like, no, we're meant to be escaping the cycle of rebirth. And I had someone on recently called Howdy Mikowski, and he talks about how there's this demiurge and it's trying to hook us back into to force us to be reborn. And uh, yeah, so it's quite a different view. So uh, if you don't mind just unpacking that a bit, I just, just I think it would be an interesting one to go down. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole right there. Um, the the escape like that's a little bit more of a gnostic kind of perspective too where we've got the you know the archons and the controllers and the, the like the evil god and the good god and they're they're fighting it out and so i yeah i totally don't adhere to this um and then you know that's another way to scare us people who are interested and in, and in have enough spiritual strength to to look into these subjects that that we're trying to avoid rebirth now that that's more talking about reincarnation and, and yeah, so I hadn't even thought about that in, in that terms of the, um, you know, the, the, if it's a metaphor or, or it's reality, I think it's reality, but it equally works well as a metaphor when, when Christ died on the cross to prove eternal life was one, one of the things, right, to show that death had no power over him. And that allowing yourself to die, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, to your beliefs, to your things that you have in your life, people you have in your life, then that is the door to this experience of rebirth that to me, we're meant to have over and over and over and maybe all day long also continue because that's growth, right? That's, that's how we become uh, of greater capacity, of greater purpose, 
of but greater what's the service. end point on that one, Beth? Where does it end? If it's con is is it infinite? Is in like a continuous one forever, or is there actually a goal that we should be aspiring to, and the rebirths take us to that goal? We have to fulfill like some kind of quest here to get to that end goal. I think the end goal is growth, and then very much in alignment with that for me is something called freedom, and. I won't define freedom for anybody because it's got to be their own inquiry, which evolves over time. But for me, I can say that my freedom is hinged on my relationship with God. So as long as I'm in direct communication with God, receiving, also, you know, um, offering, then I am free. I'm uncontrollable. And so that's that's the end. Now, when when you are yourself totally free, your job will be to help others with that. And then so that goes on. And is there a point where humanity is free and we don't have that job or that purpose anymore? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Do you think then, Beth, that upon the point of death, you will have to come back or you'll have a choice or that you actually, if you uh, achieve your rebirth and achieve the freedom and that communion with God that you can then go on to uh, another afterlife or something like this? Or do you think that, no, we will always come back? It's a great question. I, I really have no idea. I kind of know what I don't believe that, for example, the, the, uh, the heaven after death thing, I think is a psyop and has been made to take our attention away from the importance of this life and this earth that we live in. And, and so, you know, always dangling that, oh, it doesn't matter how bad things are here or how much <clears throat> work you don't do here, you're going to be rewarded in heaven because you, you know, went through these little hoops and, and steps. So uh, I did have a sense in, in my near death experience when I was sick with cancer and I gave over to death and uh, I didn't find death there at all. I was, I was amazed. I found life. I found joy. I found purpose. I, I felt like I downloaded my own blueprint to the next level. I knew it was intimately tied with my people and who I serve. There was no purpose with me alone. And, and, and then I also had the sense that the, like, as if the memory that I'm going in again, it was the memory, okay, I'm going to go in again and I'm going to, and I'm going to do better. I'm going to, correct my mistakes, I'm going to, you know, repent. And, uh, and, you know, so yeah, but it does it go on indefinitely? Did that even happen? I can't prove anything there. So be hard to argue. Yeah, we don't know. And that's, that's the bottom line, if we don't know, but I, I have a similar sense of that. And, you know, when I had my near death experience, it was something where it could have gone either way. And, at just the right moment, I was brought back. And it's almost like you, there was a second chance. And it was like, you know, I could have repeated that, that, that life that I'd had before and ended up in the same place, or I could have gone forward and said, well, no, this is an opportunity. And having that death fear removed, all of a sudden, kind of freed me up to really engage with life in a new way. So I, I don't know either, but I don't also don't subscribe to this idea that this is some kind of evil uh, simulation or that we're here and it's secretly controlled by a demiurge. I think, no, life's extremely beautiful. And, you know, the experiences that I've had and connecting with other human beings and with nature, it's just too beautiful. And it speaks to my heart too strongly to ever believe that it was uh, some kind of evil creation. So, so I didn't, 
ascribe to that. But uh, I'm always interested to hear other people's ideas on it because uh, I think that helps us to reflect. And that's something that we're not doing enough of these days. But let's go back to archetypes a little bit then, Beth. Carl Jung used to say that with an archetype, it's almost like the archetype, if you put yourself in it psychologically, then it can speak to us almost like the archetype has its own consciousness, like it exists outside of us. So how do you frame an archetype? Is it something that is almost primordial that pre predates as these archetypes? And we kind of, let's say we could even be possessed by the archetype at different times, or are they all existing within us? And it's purely like a material phenomenon. Fantastic question. Uh, if Carl Jung and I were contemporary and we had a discussion right now, we wouldn't agree because he did refer to archetypes more as entities that had a life of their own. I don't feel that. Now, entities can, as we already talked about, interact with the archetypes with you in the unconscious, not the archetype itself, I think. But I see archetypes as a blueprint or a lens or an infrastructure uh, that is both in potential and then depending on how you build within that. So it is, to me, in and of itself has no consciousness. It's the consciousness that you give to it. But there is, it's like a hard wiring or a hard drive on a computer that is, there's a certain setting to it. And possibly, you know, I have a little bit of vision with this, but can't argue it just that, you know, we chose certain archetypes to be here as our ally, but really it's not someone separate. It's just that you have, it gives you that ability. Say, if we look at the rebel archetype, it gives you that ability on the conscious or awakened side to stand up against something that's wrong, to say no, to make needed changes in the world, to risk being unpopular and to lead, right? So that potential is there for those that have that alignment to the rebel archetype. I think by birth, but also life we can, uh, you asked, you asked about, you know, so definitely not possessed. <clears throat> I do feel from the years that I had to lay down a lot when I was really sick with cancer, sometimes entirely immobilized. I couldn't even read a book or sit up at times. So everything was inside. And I saw the incredible complexity of the soul and the soul's life. And I, and it was at the time when I was I was uh, coming into awareness of the archetypes and I could see we have them all. And it's because of the oneness, right? That we are, this is where I would agree with Carl Jung, that we are a collective consciousness. We have our individual sense of I separate from you, but we also have our collective sense as humanity through time, through history, even maybe to the future where we're tied in like that. And so then where was I going with that? <laughs> um the uh yeah well i'll just say that like the archetypes become a map so they can be observed they will reveal themselves and and to me it's a practical science right like not not an academic one so people get stuck i was stuck i was a dying person i'm like god this is i have no idea why i'm still dying i need some answers here and so by diving in with archetype energy which is much more subtle than our conscious awareness, say, of, of, of our thoughts, of circumstances, of sensations to the body. You're, you're at a much more sublime level. Some people might call it ether or astral. I know those are two different things. I, I have actually never gone down that road to define those uh, particularly. But in, in that more etheric realm, 
then you can see the patterns of how your your problem is playing out. You might see like, oh, I'm in this situation right now. And by seeing the archetype, you might go, oh my gosh, I've been in this situation my whole life, different characters, different locations, you know, different seeming circumstances, but oh, the same exact pattern of thinking, feeling and behaving. And so once you tap into that pattern, you found gold, I always say, because by finding the shadow, by being precise about the shadow, it stops being a wall of stuckness that just overwhelms you and makes you feel like you can't do anything. And you get to, in that sea of archetype energy that we are, you get to go zero in and be precise and work in one place. And this is so valuable. So you can focus, right? Like, I didn't solve all my problems when I survived cancer, when I got my life force back, but I was able to solve enough of the rebel shadow, not the whole thing. I've been still working on it for the 20 years and it'll go on and on, but I have cleaned up a great deal. So I'm much less blindsided by my rebel. I'm much less, um, you know, surprised in an unhappy way, how things turned out more conscious of using it more aware of like okay yeah i'm stepping into an unpopular territory here i know it's going to mean some backlash i'm i'm good i'm i'm good with that i'm at peace with that and i can let go of you know wanting people's approval and wanting everybody to belong and everybody's um you know projection onto me i can handle it much more easily having discovered those patterns so yeah it, it simplifies the work is the is the main point to work with the archetype that's a wonderful answer, Beth. And, you know, one of the things that I found with having a very strong rebellious archetype by nature, and it runs through my family as well, so I'll maybe ask a question about that in a moment, but uh, is that it's it gives you this propensity for self-sabotage because oftentimes a rebel will go in an opposite direction, but then once they start to establish something that they initially was happy with because it was what they felt true, then they rebel against that itself. And it's almost like we rebel against our own, um, This once we put structures in place for ourselves, it's like the rebel inside then wants to throw away all of the cards off the table again and start over. And, uh, and sometimes that's very subtle. So for me as an athlete, I, I was trying to run professionally, but my rebellious side wanted me to not uh, not rest when I got injured. And to go get to deviate from the plan, the coach would say, you know, no, you need to rest. And my rebel would say, no, you don't want to rest. You're going to lose your fitness. You're going to fall backwards. And then I'd get more and more injured. And eventually the rebel sabotaged me to the point where it was a chronic injury. And it was only in reflection that I understood that what I thought I'd conquered in that rebellious side, making, making myself very structured as an athlete with a very strict diet and training program, still that rebel managed to rear its ugly head in this specific circumstance where it had almost like a little opening. It was like, aha, I know that I can capture his ego state here and he wants to succeed and et cetera. And uh, so I've always battled with that and trying, you know, the older I've gotten, the more I've had to be very careful about these subtle ways that this archetype kind of tries to um, pull me towards uh, destruction in some in some aspects. But do you think that that because we're talking about this and you you clearly were born with this archetype and I'm talking about how I was, where did that come from? Like I said, in my family, there was certainly a, a history of it. If you go back to my grandfather, my dad, my great grandfather and on and on, there's always been this rebellious archetype. And is that something that's been passed on intergenerationally? And if so, where does that begin? Does it begin 
within the family or is it something like when you're born or your family comes into being that they are almost kind of conscious like almost like astrologically like are we imbued with these energies at birth or at some other point i hope that makes sense Uh, yes, I want to answer that question, and but also quickly go back to your other comment about the self-sabotage. And um, and so the saboteur is of, an, of itself an archetype as well. And the rebel in, in my world, how I've conceived of it and found it inside myself, the rebel is on the hero's journey. I write about it in my book. I don't know if you um, have seen that. I can uh, send you a copy if you like. And oh, fantastic. Now I'd love to read it. Right on. And then the the saboteur, I call one of the primal, you use the word primordial, the primal archetypes. And the primal archetypes are as if governing over, but they have no life of their own, but they govern over life and death. So they are the ones that uh, actually created a whole course called Primal Power on this because that's how our controllers got us in the last three years, as we mentioned, that it's always this, you know, you're not going to survive, you're not safe, you're, you're not going to make it, you're going to die one way or another. And so the saboteur archetype, the awakened side of the saboteur is choice, free will of choice, which I've really glommed onto. I named my ministry after that, the house of free will. And, but the dark shadow side, when you forfeit choice, when you suppress your capacity to choose, it turns into this act of self-sabotage and very much can interact with the hero's journey archetypes. And so, yeah, the rebel and the saboteur can partner up and, and, and it is actually a rebel shadow when, when you, you know, when they create something, they get all excited. The rebels love things that are new. They, they're fire starters as they're excited at the beginning of any kind of a project. And then their shadow there is boredom and that they don't want to work. So any kind of follow through requires the, um, the you know, superpower or the ability of the warrior, which is actually the next archetype in the journey. So there's the child is at the beginning, the rebel is the next archetype, and then the warrior. So a lot of what the rebel suffers is handled by the gifts of the warrior next on the, on the journey. So I hope that adds a little bit to to what you were saying there. And I could answer your second question if you like. Yeah, sure. Continue. No, that definitely answered it. And um, yeah, it's it's just so fascinating to hear how people frame it and the angles that people have come to it from. Because I think like you mentioned before, you've got a different view to maybe Jung. And I came at archetypes through uh through the tarot actually through that's how i first came through them so my framing of it would be slightly different to yours but it's actually a christian take on the tarot I, it was the book called uh meditations on the tarot by uh well it's by a uh, an anonymous writer but it's from a christian hermeticist point of view so it reflects all the archetypes back to biblical stories uh, so i see the archetypes in a very different way to other people and uh, i just find it fascinating to hear how everyone's kind of come at this same thing and we all have similar conclusions because ultimately it's about it's about it's about helping people to heal and progress through their life to advance through the different stages and like you talk a lot about in your work it's that hero's journey it's about how do you take something that was traumatic maybe you was a victim in that situation and then overcome that so you don't remain in a victimhood state and actually hopefully assimilate that so you can move beyond it and actually if, if possible, the true art of living is to take those negative experiences and turn them into a springboard, springboard into something even better. 
Uh, and it sounds like that's what you did with your experience of cancer. But then you talked about how that's just the beginning. It's like, you know, this is a lifelong process that we're all on. Uh, so I don't know uh, if you've remembered the question after that, because I've actually forgotten the I second part. <laughs> I'm going to hand it back over to you then, Beth. I wrote it down, yeah. Uh, about the family history, I think that's very interesting because I have a lot of rebels in my history. They were in Russia during the Russian Revolution. My family's village was attacked, you know, raped and pillaged and uh, burned to the ground. And my uh, the ones that didn't die in that in that world were uh, they fled to Canada. But but what resulted in the person? One of the things that really resulted in the persecution was the rebel nature. And this is the Mennonite culture has a strong rebel thing about it. Like, for example, even today, if there was a war in Canada, Mennonites could put up their hand and say, we're not going, we're not going to fight, we're not going to kill. And that still stands. And, and so that rebellious nature, yeah, I for sure feel like I have genetically inherited that. Uh, when I was healing from cancer, I was very aware of my ancestral energy, and how that was part of the cancer that I was dealing with. That was a big part of the healing as well. In in the uh, the months and and years going through that and you know where where did they come from uh, there there is a time before you existed and then then i like i said i think i think there i think there is some choosing you know because at the soul level we have desire so there's you know surface level desire that might be more associated with the ego to me that's the first half of the hero's journey the first four archetypes and then the second half of the journey is is more about the soul and your relationship with god so rather than kind of looking out to the world and and saying like am i okay <laughs> you're it, it's more direct between you and god and so then yeah i do have this i do have the sense of choosing in that relationship with god because it's a co-creation i do have the sense of being able to choose maybe from a palette that here here is the energy i need that rebel energy i need that warrior energy i need that uh, nurturer energy i need that lover energy and uh so that's one possibility i can't prove it i just had i just had the sense of it and and then when you're talking about the um the tarot with the biblical stories that's really fascinating so one distinction is helpful that when you see archetypes play out in real life no one is just one archetype so say you take a character like rahab in the bible if you're familiar with her the prostitute that uh hid away the th the the spies that were needing cover and so you know on on the surface she's a prostitute and that is an archetype. That's one of the primal archetypes that I help people with. But she's so much more. There's there's a much more complex, um, I'll say, you know, characters in mythology and our own self, they are a cluster of archetypes. They don't come one, they're not just the rebel, they're not just the warrior, they're not just the nurturer, the king, or the alchemist. Um, but they are they are a complex cluster. And, and the way I saw it, this came from Carolyn Miss, where she talked about having an immediate family of archetypes where, yes, we have access to all of them. And if I need, all of a sudden, I need the conqueror for some reason or another, which is actually the ruler. And, um, and I, have, I do have that. So no, I got to think of something that I don't really have, um, say the vampire or something like that, that I don't feel super related to. If you need to call, and that has a light side, 
that uh, Carolyn Miss writes about. If you need that energy for some reason, then it's there for you because there's no separation. God provided everything. And by going through God to access that archetype expression, then, then that's possible. I recommend never to call on archetypes, by the way, just as an aside, I think you can open yourself up to all kinds of wrong energy. I have lots of experience with that and dealing with demons and, and that kind of thing in my life. But but calling on God for that assistance, like, okay, I need some of this, you know, energy that I don't have or I don't feel like I have. And then and then you can pull it in. But there will be certain ones that I feel are more of an immediate family. And there's consistency over time when you look back in your life it showed up over and over and over and over again. And that's how I was able to create the, uh, the eight archetypes of the hero's journey as I see them as a meaningful succession of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, patterns, way of being that naturally roll into the next one. And it represents the evolution. Now it can be seen as a ladder where you're just climbing up, up, up in that more ascension style. But what I discovered inside myself that in reality, it's a spiral. And yes, the spiral goes up and it goes down. You can evolve and you can devolve, but the, the ultimate purpose of going through the journey is to be humbled, to be healed, right? Because ascension makes you feel great, right? And whereas this deep work makes you feel humble. So anyway, that's a, that's a very long answer. I think I went off on all kind of tangents on you there. <laughs> no, that was a fantastic answer, Beth. You know, one thing that it made me think about when you said that and you talked about ascension is that in the West today, we do have this form of pseudo spirituality that is devoid of actual real work. It's devoid of the shadow work. and it actually is a more narcissistic form because it's all about the self it's all about feeling better it's all about well actually in many ways it's also about indulging ourselves in some more hedonism but by uh, applying this kind of um, spiritual wrapper so we go and get high in a tent have someone say it's a shaman shamanic ceremony and uh, it's just an excuse to maybe indulge in psychedelics or we go and maybe go on a retreat and fantastic it's great to relax it's great to do some yoga but a lot of it's devoid of that real hard spiritual work and you know the people that come out of those can unfortunately tend towards narcissism and really uh, self-ego because it's all about me 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 uh, but not actually about going through the bad sides of me and the, the bits of me that I don't maybe uh, like about myself uh, it's about actually saying no I just accept myself wholly and everything's great and I don't think that works and I guess this speaks to something that we're seeing take place in the world because past civilizations would have all been uh, taught these archetypes in their youth so the Greeks would have taught their children the myths and inside of the myths there was these very strong archetypes of all different gods and deities and these fantastical stories where there'd be every every human experience imaginable you know good and bad existed within these stories and I love the Greek myths uh, but today we're not taught these and we're fed through the mainstream media this really narrow bandwidth of archetypes and it's usually the negative, or well, I don't want to say negative either because I don't like to use that word, but let's just say the more 
potentially destructive side. So, you know, instead of loving relationships, it's uh, adultery and it's or it's hypersexualization. Uh, in the hero story, it's violence, 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 lots of shooting, lots of films where there's lots of death. And this narrow bandwidth is locking us into these really primitive, almost bestial states. It's almost like we're devolving back towards a really weak psychological state rather than advancing. So do you think that this has been weaponized against us? Uh, for sure. I'll, I'll speak to that. And I want to go back and talk about hedonism, by the way. That's such a good point, too. But uh, but yes, absolutely. These archetypes are weaponized against us 100 uh, percent. You know, the first way that there are not the first way, but in, in our history, you can point to Edward Bernays and working very closely. That's probably where Carl Jung as an elite was also very plugged in and how to manipulate people through the archetypes. And, you know, so this became the whole world of marketing and advertising that are constantly using an archetype in order to what I call park in your consciousness. And I also use archetypes to park in people's consciousness. Now, you know, the, the hope is my motive is better than, than uh, the advertisers. It can be benign in, in, in that way, but it's not usually benign. It's usually meant to make people feel like they are deficient, they need to go get something that they don't have, that they're always the the uh, horse trying to get the carrot and they never get it, but they keep on being motivated to do that. So 100% these archetypes are weaponized against us, especially those primal archetypes because of our aversion to doing the shadow work. You're, you're calling it uh, pseudo-spirituality is absolutely bang on. It is void of the shadow work. I know I went to India eight times. I don't know if you know that uh, about me as well. And I studied with the white bearded guru on the mountain and it was all about enlightenment and this, you know, they didn't call it ascension, but that's basically what enlightenment is. And uh, it, it's a very dangerous path. So, you know, my guru who was supposedly an enlightened being, well, it turned out he was a pedophile and he might even have been a murderer and for sure a thief pocketing all of the the cash all the way along and also a hedonist big time right because he was um it, it's funny because i tried really hard to get into his inner, inner circle but god was taking care of me i was never allowed in there thank god and you never got into that I know, I know i know and i got sick with cancer just on the precipice just before he was exposed and showed up in the toronto globe and mail on the saturday front page which uh, should have turned everybody away from him. It just split the community. There was there was people that went forward with him anyway. And it really was a symptom of that spirituality that's void of the shadow work and the inability to go and, and just go like, because the higher you get, the more spiritual power you have, the harder it is to see your own shadow. And that's actually a lot about the king archetype that I write about in my book because they get up to a high place, they have power, they have dominion, um, they have a kingdom, there might be resources and wealth, people look up to them. And, you know, if they, for example, don't have God in their life, then that shadow of being the tyrant, the malevolent ruler can very easily take over. But as long as you've got God there to go like, oh, something unhealed, look, something wrong in your kingdom, let it reflect what it, it's actually showing you about yourself. And to in, invite the king to do that 
next level deep inner healing work and uh i can relate a little bit with that right now just i know i don't have a a huge kingdom of any but it's 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 my it's my kingdom that the the bigger one that i've had and i'm always troubleshooting people you know can be outright attacks they don't like when you're the tall poppy and you stick your head and your neck out and they just want to come and take your head off and so there can be that just like they're they're confronted by someone who's being themselves and um, full of life maybe and all of that kind of thing and then there can also be the truth in that where you get the reflections things you need to know that you don't see and that maybe your life there's nothing wrong happening like if i just look around everything's good but then those things can point to some fine points in the shadow work and give you access to what otherwise you might not see about yourself Wow, there's a lot to talk about there, Beth. And I think we're going to take a lot of this into part two. But one of the things that really resonated with me, that is what you just said about this kingdom. And, you know, I remember one of my favorite athletes once said, and, you know, I really like the athletic world and the sporting world, because I think that confronts us with all of these archetypes psychologically. I think when you're performing at a high level or trying to, you really have to face yourself all day, every day, because it's a psychological process. It's not the physical part is similar to the, the to the illness actually in that the physical part is just the manifestation of what's happening in your mind you know to truly transcend your ability so that you can become something that you currently don't believe you are capable of being that person or achieving that is just the same in sports as it is in life and the body just follows the mind you know you're never going to achieve anything unless you've truly convinced that subconscious mind that it's possible but one of my favorite athletes said you know when I was really performing badly and uh, I was losing a lot I had tons of friends everyone oh you know it'll be all right next time patting me on the back and giving me lots of sympathy but he said as soon as I started to do that and get better and overcame myself they all disappeared and nobody likes a winner and I found that in life too It's, it's a lonely place when you're achieving things because uh, we've that's an archetype it's this uh or innate or a damaging aspect of one is jealousy and envy but i wanted to take a lot more into part two so i think i'm going to leave it there for part one Beth, so we can get into some of the more uh juicy topics in part two because i really want to follow through with this idea that it's been weaponized against us the past few few years and to find out how you're helping people work through that because you mentioned law as well and I think that's a really key part of this so uh, just before we end part one Beth can you direct people towards your work if somebody wants to work with you where's the best place to go and what's the best starting point yeah thank you very much so the um I want to talk about the hedonist in the next hour that'll that'll be oh, some sure. content there yeah that a really big one especially considering weaponization and so you can find me at bethmartins.com with that's that's with an ens.com uh, you can also go to the uh, how, uh, freewillministry.live, which also takes you to bethmartins.com. So either one of those. And you can do a quiz to see where on the hero's journey you are, the King Hero's Journey quiz. Just sign up with your email and then you can right away get access. It takes 10 minutes to find out where you are in the path to help begin to simplify the work. So you have a point of entry. If you're serious about freedom, then you have a place to begin working in, in doing that deprogramming work. I do help my clients either one-on-one or in courses or in coaching groups in the house of free will to, to themselves deprogram, to uh, 
you know, sometimes they have very strong goals. Maybe they're going to, they, they want to create a service. They want to be an entrepreneur. They want to move into the private domain, which we'll talk about in the second hour as well. And so then you can apply to work with me in that way, either one-on-one, -on -one, a group, in a group, or in a course. And something that's coming up now, I'm training coaches. So this was born of the pandemic where I asked God, okay, is it time to die? And just simply, you know, like prepare myself and, and get all my groceries for two or five years or whatever. <clears throat> and I said, God, what could I create at this time that would be of service to others and would help me? And the idea of uh, training people to do the coaching that I do for the last 15 going on 20 years, then that's what I started doing. And so I created a seven month training where people can go through and learn the tools of deprogramming, of course, to use for themselves first, because that's, you can't help anyone if you don't do your own healing work, and then how to help other people to guide them using the archetypes as the map, and some really simple but important tools and principles of good coaching so that you don't, for example, burn yourself out helping other people. And that's a big part of the people in my world, they tend to be helpers. They want to help, they want to be of service. It's a natural thing, the nurturer archetype, by the way. But there's a lot of pitfalls with that. And yeah, you can get into a lot of trouble. So that's what I've got coming up. That training is going to start September 13th. I'm hosting an open house July 26, which is going to be free and open to anybody who wants to come and learn about the techniques and what the training is like. So um, if you like, I can share a link with you to that after we're done the interview and um, then yeah I think that's it there's a number of courses and I could go on and on there's so much the house of free will is a beautiful place everything in the private lots of workshops coming up um, on cell salts with Ben Balderson if you know him and we just did a, a flat earth workshop so I don't know whether you love flat earth or not but oh, yes. people tend to... oh good oh good yes we just did a great one I think there's part two tomorrow after I'm still waiting um, we, you know, we talked on all the law subjects or, or a bunch of them, especially the private domain is my, is my passion. So there's a number of resources, a, a growing library and a community there if anybody wants to join in the private domain. Awesome. Well, I'm going to put all the links in the uh, descriptions of the video as always, Beth. And in my uh, member section, I put much more advanced notes so I can um, put things in more in depth there. So if you... Uh, would like to listen to part two please come over to parallelmind.com and join us thank you so much for joining us beth i've had a fantastic time speaking with you thus far but i'm really excited to get into part two so let's do it right on thanks so much for hosting me okay everyone here is where we pause for a second to end part one but before we go i just wanted to give you all a quick update as to my own work i recently finished working with one of my coaching clients so now i have some space available so if anyone out there is wanting to really affect change in their financial and spiritual life i am available for coaching now i often work with people who are pursuing specific goals so this could be somebody who is beginning or already on a journey to try and change their life in some meaningful way now as a coach when i work with a client it's a holistic process that recognizes that all aspects of our life are interconnected and equally important to work on. So for example, perhaps somebody wants to increase their wealth and wants coaching around that specific aim. Well, increasing our wealth will not be beneficial if we become morally decayed in the process or our relationships break down and at the end, nothing has changed within us. So if we are pursuing a goal such as increasing our wealth, we still have to factor in our relationships, our mental and spiritual health, 
our physical fitness, all of those things actually matter as well. So I work with clients a lot on creating a vision of a future that brings together all of these things. And then we start to work on the mindset that they will need to manifest that future in their lives without any barriers. So this means removing limiting self-beliefs, using visualizations, self-talk, really working on the subconscious mind to convince it that this future that we are trying to achieve is going to happen for us. Now, when we succeed in doing that, amazing things start to happen. The right people at the right time turn up, opportunities start to arise. And you know, I've seen this happen so many times. I've done it in my own life from becoming a professional runner, having had no background in running to a year later becoming a competitive ultra runner that was winning races. Then I went on to use the same techniques to transform myself into a successful investor and then later I used it to become a farmer and to manifest this future that I now live working here on my farm delivering this material and content to you. So I do this with clients and I've seen so many fantastic transformations using these exact same principles that I learned myself. So that is what coaching is about. It's about self-transformation. It's about learning those skills so that we can continue to transform our lives for the better ongoing. It's a lifelong process. Now outside of coaching, I also work with people in a therapeutic manner. Many of you will know I used to be a therapist and counselor. So I still work with people one-to-one in a therapeutic manner. This is done using a depth tarot session. So I actually use the tarot cards and the archetypes on the tarot to help people overcome certain problems in their life to answer questions that are needing answering. So this is something that I do in a one-to-one session. We sit down, we use the tarot and of course this is not used necessarily to predict the future or anything like that but it is used to help people make sense of their future and of course it often does have the effect that it helps to shape and guide someone's future so I can certainly understand why some people do come back to me and say oh my god those cards help me make sense of this situation that was about to come. So I use the depth tower sessions I pair that with my therapeutic discussion so that's something that is more like a person-centered counseling discussion so that's helping you to work through things think through things so if you're feeling like you've got some barriers or obstacles in your life and you'd like to explore that you'd like to explore your subconscious and the archetypes within it then you can book a depth tower session on my website parallelmike.com finally as many of you know i also host the parallel systems broadcast where we talk about finance and wealth preservation And I've been doing quite a lot of wealth preservation consultations recently, which is where I help people prepare for the coming financial flood. And it's likely that it's going to be much more than just a financial one. So in those sessions, I help clients get themselves financially and practically prepared to first and foremost, not just protect their wealth, but also increase it. And of course, this session is very much tailored to that person's unique and specific financial circumstances. So we discuss their savings, their deposits, anything that might be at risk in the future. We talk about how to best protect that. It can also include things like pensions or inheritance, tax payments, all of these things we discuss because ultimately we're trying to ensure that when this system comes down, it doesn't take our wealth with it. Now, of course, we have to analyze other things like geopolitical risk, strategies for building more resilient lifestyles and communities, taking back control over things like our food, energy and water. So ultimately, that is what a wealth preservation consultation is all about. It's about making sense of our financial and practical future. And, you know, I like to frame this as though we are building our ark, similar to the biblical story of Noah, because trust me, there is a flood and it's definitely coming at this point, whether we like it or not. So if you'd like some help building your financial ark, then you can book a wealth preservation consultation via my website, where you can also, of course, listen to part two of this fantastic conversation with Beth Martins. So members, I hope to see you 
over there for part two and in the comments section also to discuss this fantastic episode. If you are yet to become a member, please consider it. I have some members only content coming up in the coming weeks, including a Q&A session. So if you'd like to ask me some specific questions, you can become a member and your questions will be answered on the Q&A session. In closing, have a fantastic week. I hope you're all good, healthy and happy. And of course, I will see you all in the next one. What you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.